This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry M. Paulson Jr. joins the Post to discuss the role of business in addressing climate change, the implications for the economy, and more. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. We're kicking off a new series uh, for Washington Post Live called Protecting Our Planet. And today, our first guest is Hank Paulson, who was Treasury Secretary for President George W. Bush. Before that, he was chief executive of the investment bank Goldman Sachs. Secretary Paulson is now heading a unit of the private equity fund TPG Capital that focuses on climate change. He's also chairman and founder of the Paulson Institute. Welcome, Secretary Paulson. Happy Earth Week. David, it's good to be here with you on Earth Week. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this week's big event. On Thursday and Friday, President Biden will host a virtual climate summit from the White House, hopes to gather leaders of as many as 40 nations to talk about climate issues. The talk is that President Biden may announce significant new U.S. commitments to cut emissions as much as 50 percent uh, from the levels that we emitted in 2005. Based on what you hear, do you think that kind of commitment is likely this week? Listen, I'm not going to speculate on uh, on wh- whether it's likely, but I'm sure there's going to be some kind of a commitment. And let me tell you, uh, you know, he's off to a, a great start. You know, we're, we're, we're back in the game again, joining Paris right out of the box. And he's already done a number of things that are very, very significant. You know, he said, we're going to use, uh, you know, federal agencies to set new standards, whether it's for appliances or energy transmission or, you know, or, or, or motor vehicles. He is, uh, he's appointed a, a terrific new team. You, you saw John Kerry, but uh, uh, just a, a really good team across the board. Uh, today, Janet Yellen announced an important uh, climate financing hub at uh, Treasury, h- headed up by uh, by John Morton. So there's th- there's a lot that's going on. You know, in his infrastructure bill, it, it, it's rich with climate initiatives, and I think the whole world's going to be watching, you know, today to see what the new commitments are. Uh, and I think they'll be very important. But as I'll as I'll make the point maybe a little bit later when we talk, I think. Uh, the UN voluntary commitments, uh, you know, are, are 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 necessary, but they're they're far from sufficient. We're, we're going to need need other uh, mechanisms, uh, global uh, governance mechanisms, if we're going to meet uh, meet the climate change challenge. Without asking you to predict what the President Biden will will announce, let me ask you: Do you think? Uh, a 50% reduction uh, in emissions by 2030 from from the 2005 levels, first, is achievable, and second, is it enough in terms of the seriousness of the crisis? Well, let me tell you, given the seriousness of the crisis, 
we need to accelerate it. We need to do as, as much as possible. And is it achievable? Uh, you know, I, I worked on a study with Mike Bloomberg and, uh, and, and Tom Steyer of the Risky Business looking at the economic impact of climate change and what it would take. And, you know, I, I, I thought to, to get to carbon, uh, you know, to get to net zero by 2050, that was a, that was a big, big uh, job. And, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to involve a lot. It, it's not just going to involve getting out these, uh, uh, you know, the electrification and the renewables and clean energy. Uh, it, it's going to involve uh, making uh, significant uh, uh, changes in our industrial processes. You know, how we do everything, not just generate electricity and provide transportation, but how we make things. And, uh, you know, and manufacturing things like cement or, and steel and, and so on. We're gonna need big breakthroughs in technologies that, that, uh, that either don't exist or are not economically practical. So, uh, but, but I, I love, uh, I'd love the aspiration, that's for sure. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and I really like some of the, the, the uh, areas in which uh, President Biden is proposing we invest. Let me ask you, Mr. Secretary, how the rest of the world is going to perceive this Earth Day virtual summit. Do you think that the world sees the United States now as, as back in its role of leadership and commitment on, on climate change? And part of that question is, how much damage do you think was done to the image of the U.S.? during the Trump years when we left the Paris Accords and really disdained these goals? Well, I think a lot of damage was done, and I don't think it's going to be easy to regain leadership across the board, right? Uh, th that, uh, th because I think much of the rest of the world has, uh, you, know, you know, lost some of the confidence they had in the, in the U.S. But I'll tell you one thing I do know from talking to leaders around the world and CEOs around the world, they are really glad to see the U.S. back, and they're really hoping and expecting we're able to play an a, a important leadership role. But a big part of that is going to come down to things we do at home, and not just in climate, you know, not just in climate, you know, making progress in our political system, our, you know, our economic system, uh, healing some of the divisiveness we have in our nation, you know, the extreme polarization. So I think we've got a lot of work to do, but, uh, and, and I think that's sort of the big challenge and the big opportunity that President Biden has is, uh, again, being able to uh, demonstrate uh, leadership abroad and making some of these, uh, uh, you know, global, uh, sort of the global governance mechanisms work. Mr. Secretary, you know China as well as any American these days, and I'm interested in your reading of where the U.S. and China are, first on, on climate change. We'll talk about some other issues in a minute. But as you know, Secretary Kerry was just in China last week. Uh, there was a communique issued uh, uh, Monday that had nice sounding but somewhat vague language saying that two countries are committed to cooperating with each other 
to tackle the climate crisis. There were no specific commitments and the Chinese vice minister who'd been involved in the, in the talks said it wasn't realistic to expect China to announce specific commitments yet. How do you read that language? And do you think the U.S. and China are working together on climate for real? Yeah, I, I think they are working together for real, but I think there's a lot of work we need to do to uh, get to the place where we have any kind of a constructive relationship here. I, I think that relationship is, is as fraught as any time, any, I, I've seen during my time in working, working with China and working in China. I mean, we are right now competitors. I think the right way to look at it uh, not just ideologically and economically and in terms of trade and in terms of technology, but across a wide range of areas. And this relationship is going to be brought for the foreseeable future. And so we're going to have to work together and make progress in areas where we have a common interest. And, and, and just take uh, climate change. China is ground zero when it comes to climate change. You know, 33% of the global emissions come from China. So I, I can say flat out, we've got no hope of avoiding the worst outcomes if China doesn't make real progress. And if that China fails, the worst, worst outcomes are, 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 go, are going to accelerate. And so now, and to me, it's not as simple as China just uh, saying, well, guess what? We're gonna change our voluntary targets. And Right now, we're, we're saying we're going to peak in 2030 and we're going to be carbon neutral in 2060. Well, let me tell you, China has got a lot of inefficient, big, global uh, or manufacturing industries, whether it's cement, steel, petrochemicals. And so they're still heavily reliant on coal. And so they've got these massive problems at home. And then when you look at their involvement on the so-called Belt and Road companies, right, countries, right, which is a lot of the developing nations in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, you know, their practices outside of China uh, need more work than even those inside China. So there's a lot that needs to be done. That's the negative. The positive is they are farther ahead in, in, in making a bigger effort than you know, virtually every other developing nation. And so the models they're developing there in green finance and otherwise are the ones that are gonna be very necessary in the developing world. And there's a lot we can do with China, but I, I don't think we can get started by saying, hey, why don't you accelerate your, you know, your ambition so you peak before 2030? We need them to peak before 2030, but we need to start working with them on policies and practices to help them get there. And there's a whole series of things we can do uh, to build confidence. And I'm sure hoping we're going to do those. And if anybody uh, knows the way to do that, it, it's John Kerry. You used uh, that uh, phrase uh, more fraught than at any time in your career, speaking about the US-China relationship in a speech that you were kind enough to send me this this morning. It was it was strong language. And my, my question is whether the uh, competition that's clear in the technology sector, and you said in that same speech that you thought some strategic decoupling was inevitable in, in technology, whether that competition is gonna spill over into the climate 
area or whether climate can be kept in a separate box, if you will, where both nations in, in their own and the world's interest pursue that even, even as they compete uh, in other sectors? What do you think? David, that is the key question. And right now there has been competition, right? Because we, China has tariffs on you know, environmental goods and services. And so it makes no sense. They should be working with the United States to reduce tariffs on environmental goods and services. They've been driving down the cost, which has made a big, big difference in renewables and helped China and the whole world. But, I, 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 but they can't view this as just a way to help their own uh, economic, uh, economic situation. So I think this is going to have to be managed, but I, I think it can be managed because we can clearly find areas where it makes great sense to, uh, to cooperate. And if we don't cooperate, we're in big trouble. Okay, and so, I, but you've pointed your finger at a, at a meaningful risk. And I don't wanna be naive about it because I, I would say a big part of what needs to be done is rolling out the technologies which already exist, right, and are commercially viable and rolling those out very, very quickly and scaling them very quickly. But then a lot has to be done to develop new game-changing technologies. You know, uh, yeah, as I say, manufacture cement, manufacture steel, you know, jet fuel, uh, how you make manufacturing processes more efficient. And in, in those areas, I think we need to work with China. We both need to be investing in game-changing technologies and we need to help roll those out and scale in China. And that's gonna take some relaxation of, you know, export regulations and other things. And uh, so it's, it, it's, it is going to take some cooperation. Mr. Secretary, let me ask uh, for one more uh, insight uh, about China, given your unusual uh, uh, high-level contacts with, with Chinese leaders. After the Anchorage meeting between Secretary Blinken, uh, Jake Sullivan, and their, their Chinese counterparts, there was concern among some U.S. officials that uh, Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping may uh, have a goal of reunification with Taiwan that's earlier rather than later. In other words, this may be becoming a, a more immediate concern and potentially problem. What's your reading about, about the, the Taiwan situ situation and how it's seen in Beijing? Well, I, I've got to tell you, as I think, David, you know, Taiwan and you know the territorial issues are very, very important uh, in Beijing. And, you know, the, 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 the three communiques, uh, which were essential to uh, the development of the U.S.-China relations, and, and it basically kept peace in the region and allowed for, for, for Taiwan to, to prosper, have been, you know, have worked to date. Now, do I think this is going to be an area of, of heightened tension and concern, you betcha. Do I think we need to uh, stand by our commitment to Taiwan? Of course we do. Uh, and, but this is something we need to watch very, very carefully because I think there's a lot of things that China can do to put pressure on 
uh, Taiwan short of a military invasion. And, you know, they've got, they've got a lot of economic levers. And so I, I think this is, if, if you wanted to point, you know, we, we could point to, to a good number of areas that are flashpoints in terms of national security. And so I think the key to this relationship is how to avoid unnecessary confrontation. Because we've seen, you know, in the past, we've seen, you know, we've had plenty of, of, of confrontation without healthy competition. And so I think we got to, what I'm trying to focus on, what are the areas where we can have some healthy, some healthy competition where we can work together? And if we don't figure out how and where we're going to work together, okay, where we're going to compete, and then how to avoid conflict in the areas like the ones you, the one you just cited, there's going to be real chaos, and we're not going to make progress on climate change. But there's plenty of other issues of global importance we won't make progress on, also. And so again, I I don't. China is not a revolutionary threat or power. They they are. They benefit from from a a, a global system. Uh, they need stability just like we do. They need peace just like we do. We're going to need some rules of the road for trade and for technology, and we need to make some progress. But it's going to be difficult. But again, climate change is a logical area for us to work because the Chinese look at it as an economic issue that it is. And I think there's plenty of room for us to make progress there. Let's uh, turn from China to two other big uh, developing economies, uh, India and Brazil, uh, which are crucial pieces of the climate change puzzle. We're still in a global slowdown caused by the, the pandemic. Do you think it's going to be harder to get Brazil and India and other uh, countries that are that are important in this process to make commitments now while the, the pandemic and the slowdown are continuing? Let's start with Brazil, because I've spent a lot of time in Latin America, not just China. I set up a Latin American Conservation Council and done a lot of work around the Amazon, working with the president of Colombia, you know, Ivan Duque. And uh, and as he worked to put together the Leticia Pact, which involved Brazil and the other nations that uh, that, that hold part of the Amazon, and uh, this is critically important. So to step back, big picture, uh, Latin America has been ravaged, absolutely ravaged by the pandemic. When you look at the economic damage and you look at the health damage that's been done. And, and Brazil has been hit very, very hard. So th th there's no doubt about that. And th these and Bolsonaro is very difficult to work with uh, on the, these issues. But I actually think you can argue it both ways. But I believe that and the message that I give all the time, I, I give to the Brazilians and, and I give to other Latin American countries, it's going to take a lot of money, a lot of stimulus to build back. And that money, I think there's a much greater chance that money is going to come from foreign investors 
and that's a and then it will come from some of the multilateral institutions if you're building back greener. And if you're not, it's you're going to have trouble getting the financing that that you were going to need to build your to to build your economies back. And and so Brazil is a tough one because uh, it's so hard with Bolsonaro. But there's also in Brazil there are you know, governors of the key states on the Amazon that I think are more progressive. And I think there's ways in which uh, John Kerry is going to be able to work with key members of, of, of Congress there. And, and we've got a very good ambassador there and work, worked to get some of the changes we need. And th this is critically important. I'd say, you know, I, I, I know that, uh, uh, that John Kerry is focused on India big time. And you know we, we you know, India is well behind China and, and what they're able to do and what they're willing to do. A lot that uh, of what happens in India, like the rest of the developing world, is going to center around this the way I look at this climate transition. So transitioning from a a, in a, a global economy that is you know, 80% reliant on carbon-based fuels and has been for, you know, hundreds of years to a low carbon or zero carbon economy has got to be the most important, difficult, complex industrial uh, transition that's, that's, that's occurred in history. And so part of this is going to be, how do you get renewables, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, make them, Cheaper and and I know that John Kerry is focused on that and electrification, but a, a good part of it is going to be also on making advances in all kinds of other industrial processes, and, and so this is going to play out. There's going to be multiple chapters, uh, economies are going to evolve, leading companies are going to evolve, but we have to change. And this is hugely difficult to change the way we not just generate like electricity, but how we manufacture things, how we you know, provide transportation, the food we eat. So th this is very, very difficult. And I, I think we, and so that's why I come back to this global governance, because there's all this focus this week, and rightfully so, on UN and voluntary targets. And everybody talks about them as if they're the be all or the end all. And, you know, and I'm really glad that uh, uh, the President Biden is, is leading in this area. But these are voluntary targets. We're not on pace to meet those targets. We're not on close to being on pace to meet those targets. And even if we did, the world's going to overheat. So I think the other thing, which is going to be much more difficult for the United States to work on with China and other major economies. We need a mechanism that focuses on the big economies, right? You know, U.S., but, but, but China, India, Brazil, the big economies, and deals squarely with the, uh, the problem of free riding and provides a real uh, incentive to curb emissions. So, Mr. Secretary, let's talk about the role of, of business in this transition. You said that you think that business uh, in the U.S. And, and major global businesses are near a tipping point on, on climate change. Explain what you mean by that. Well, 
here's what I mean, David. I mean that uh, in the last two or three years, and, and, and really the last couple of years, uh, we, we've seen a number of things that are pushing business to move very quickly here. And I'll take them off very quickly. Uh, first is the dramatic uh, reduction in the cost of renewables. So I'm talking about uh, wind, solar, batteries for performance. They've come down to the fact that in, in countries with 73% of the world GDP, re renewables are, are, are lower cost or, or competitive when fossil-based uh, fuels. And so that's, th that's huge. Uh, we've seen great pressure from consumers. I, I refer to it as the Greta effect, right? We've seen uh, pressure from investors. I call that the Larry Fink effect, but there's <laughs> a, a, the investors are, are, are putting much more, uh, much more pressure on, on companies. Then, so you've seen 2,000 major companies make net zero pledges, okay? Many of them don't have a clue how they're gonna get there, but they've, but they've made the pledges. And you've seen a, 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 the development of a carbon offset market, putting a price on carbon. It's not where it needs to be. It's voluntary you know, and mandatory. There's, you know, we've got markets in California and New England and you know, much more advanced markets in Europe and China is, is getting ready to, to, to develop their own market. So you've, you've seen all that. And then here's the last thing that I think has made the big change and it's the markets. It has become so clear right now that we are going to be rewiring society to go through this big industrial trans, uh, transition that I've talked about. And so CEOs know it's here to stay and they know that the markets get there ahead of the revenues and the earnings. And so, of course, there's gotta be a bubble when you look at Tesla, but when it's trading at eight times the market cap of, of GM, that's sort of reminiscent of what you and I watched with cellular, right? Where you saw the volume, right? With the yellow pages and landlines and where the market go to cellular. And so now it's fascinating. I've been calling companies all over the world. And if three years ago, I talked to them about it. They'd say, sure, climate change is important. And then they would do what you did. They would change it, want to talk about China or, or, or whatever, or, or US politics. Uh, or talk to me about their sustainability officer. Now they're focused on this big time, either for offensive reasons, because as the world, we're going through this tra transition, they see great opportunities for investment or for defensive reasons. And so what I'm seeing is companies are, are, are investing really much more heavily than you would have expected. You're seeing disclosures become more rigorous. You know, 3M hasn't just said we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. They're going to report every year along the way, the math of the path. Honeywell has is, is done something that's very similar. And, and so again, I think we're at a tipping point. And what, what this means is, as I look at this industrial, uh, uh, what I call transition, but it, it's going to be the next 10 years is going to be very important. And so the key to the next 10 years is going to be rolling out the commercially viable technologies 
and rolling them out in scale. And what I see, and what I see as the opportunity there, is in the past, you'd seen a lot of investments in contracted renewables with relatively low returns. You'd seen uh, investments in venture, but standard private equity investments weren't being made because there weren't the big returns that were necessary. And so to me, my punchline here is you're not going to make this transition without, uh, without private capital. And private sector capital is not going to come in the size and quantity you need it to make a real difference on a concessionary basis. So what it's going to take is to demonstrate that there are plenty of solutions investing in climate technologies that are viable, where it is possible to make a, an attractive private equity return. And, and so the, the reason that I decided and I've been working hard in the public policy area, and I'm going to continue to do that. But I think I'll make a bigger difference if I return to my roots in finance and have a pool of capital. And so the fund that I'm working with, you know, the Rise Climate Fund, is a fund that's going to look to get attractive returns so we can pave the way for other capital to come to roll out these technologies, right? And it's going to measure social impact in terms of carbon emissions avoided. So we'll be able to, to do both. Now, this is only part of what is required because it is the important part for the next 10 years, but it's the easier part, as difficult as that is, because we need to continue to, to invest in these industrial processes. The last point I would make is one, some of the things the investments that I've seen that have been the most exciting to me have been one, for instance, called Big River Steel, which, which TPG invested in, which is the only startup steel company that I can think of being a success in the U.S. in the last 10 or 15 years. It now uh, comprises almost 5% of U.S. steel production, and it's LEEDS certified because it, it, it emits 93% less carbon. So only 7% of the carbon of a normal steel mill. It uses recycled steel and a whole different process. And so that company has now been sold to US Steel and it's making steel to go into autos. But that's the kind of progress we need to see uh, to get, you know, to, to, to really avoid what I see as the worst outcomes. So, Mr. Secretary, uh, we're out of time. I wish we could continue this for a, another half hour. It's fascinating to hear you as a prominent uh, former Republican Treasury Secretary working so closely with John Kerry, the special envoy, with President Biden, and really all on the same page. So help, thank you for helping us kick off uh, Earth Week and our new effort to talk about protecting our planet. Thanks so much for being with us. David, thank you very much. Good to be so, with you. So uh, that's, that's all the time we have for, for today. Please uh, tune in tomorrow at 10 o'clock when my colleague Jonathan Capehart will interview the key player that Secretary Paulson has been talking about, U.S. Special uh, Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry. Uh, please be with us then. Thanks for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, 
visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.